This is Backstory with us, the American History Guys. I'm Peter Onuf, 18th Century Guy. I'm Ed Ayers, 19th Century Guy. And I'm Brian Ballow, 20th Century History Guy. Six shows into its first season on the air, the NBC show The West Wing took on a subject that it's probably safe to say had never been treated on primetime television before. Sam, I read my briefing book last night on the Commerce Bill regarding the census, and there's certain parts of it that I don't quite understand. I can help you out. Which parts? Well, all of it. All of it? Yes. That's CJ, the presidential press secretary character, who finally admits to her deputy, Sam, that she's been faking her way through all of the press briefings on the census bill. I've been playing it fast and loose. There's no doubt about it. But sitting in on some of the meetings we've been having and reading the briefing book last night, I have to say that the census is starting to sound to me like it's, well, important. Important or not, the actor playing CJ, her name is Allison Janney, later told the PBS NewsHour that she was stunned to learn that producer Aaron Sorkin had written a show about the census. I thought Aaron was crazy. I read that and I was like, well, this is going to be the most boring thing ever. Which, in essence, was our reaction when our producer suggested we devote an entire show to the census. And we're academic historians with a high boredom threshold. But <laughs> then we got to talking about it, and it quickly became clear to us, as it did to Alice and Jenny before us, how much of what's important in American history comes back to, you guessed it, the census. Now I can guarantee you, everyone who saw that show is going to fill out their census. If you were among the 74% of Americans who did fill out and mail back their form last year, you know that it was a relatively straightforward process. Ten questions, many of which have been there since the very first census back in 1790. But over the years, the form has changed in significant ways. Today on the show, we're going to explore how those changes on the decennial census form reflect profound shifts in our understandings of what it has meant to be an American. We'll start at the very beginning of the story. Representatives and direct taxes shall be apportioned among the several states which may be included within this union according to their respective numbers. This, of course, is the section of the U.S. Constitution that established the House of Representatives. And though it may sound ho-hum to you now, the idea of basing a system of government on an actual nose count was utterly groundbreaking back in 1787. Unfortunately, the common association with the census was all negative. That's Michael Quinn, the director of Montpelier, James Madison's historic home here in central Virginia. James Madison, you will remember, was our fourth president, but he was also the main author of the Constitution. Why would government want to count people? Well, usually there are two reasons. They either want to take more of their wealth, so they want to find out who you are and where you live, or else they want to draft people for an army, which means they're going to conscript your young men. In 1787, conscripting young men wasn't really at the top of the founders' to-do list, but taking people's wealth, well, it's fair to say it was. They were keenly aware that if the young nation was going to survive, the central government would need to figure out a way to fund itself. The genius of Article One was that by tying both taxation and representation to that nose count, It assured that citizens wouldn't try to shirk their fiscal responsibilities by laying low when the nose counter came around. They had an incentive to stand up and be counted. And that is classic Madisonian thinking. You know, Madison again and again said you should never trust anyone. Now, at the same time, he never gave up 
what he realized the need for was to have counterbalancing forces, motivations. Well, if you think that's good, it gets better. Because not only did the founders create a legislative body that would truly reflect the shape of its constituency, they also made sure that it would continue to do so on into the future. The actual enumeration shall be made within three years after the first meeting of the Congress of the United States and within every subsequent term of ten years in such manner as they shall by law direct. They recognized how quickly the country was growing and how rapidly it was changing. They anticipated people moving west. So they talked about the fact that if we set forever, once and for all, how we are represented in Congress here at this Constitutional Convention, that will be an unjust distribution of power in 10, 20, 30 years. So they came to the conclusion that if we count people, then we will always, we're literally building in a revolution every 10 years in the American system because we will reapportion the number of representatives in Congress. And it ended up stripping power over time from very powerful states at the beginning. And it did it in a very peaceful manner. That's Michael Quinn, director of James Madison's Montpelier. Peter, like just about everything in your period, it, it could have gone quite differently, right? Because a lot of people said that people should, in essence, be counted based on their wealth. Am I mm. wrong? Yeah. This notion of wealth being represented uh, was a traditional idea in early modern societies. It's the stake in society idea that those who own should be the ones who control the distribution eat, of their own property. Who eat right. steak. Yeah, yeah. But uh, in the revolutionary period, a new idea was in the air, and that was the idea of popular sovereignty. When you had this fiction, as it's called, this idea that the people are the source of legitimate authority, well, who's the people? Everybody's the people. You know what I don't understand, though, Peter, is we know that very few people really voted. Most people were not allowed to vote. Um, no, well, in fact, because they didn't own property yeah, or they yeah. were women <laughs> or they were the, oh, you know, so you, owned oh, by oh, somebody. Oh, oh, hold it. So people yeah, include, so why do we need oh, to why do we need to count everybody? Oh, come on. People include women? Not in this period. But we counted them for the census. That's my well, question. That's true. And this is the radical revolutionary move, as Mike Quinn suggests. And that is there's a whole new idea of the source of legitimate authority comes from the people. And the people is not simply the big property owners or the property owners because those numbers and proportions vary. And, of course, everybody uh, except for slaves and Indians not counted, they're citizens. And, and so they have to be represented. You know, we have this idea that representation is direct and that everybody has a say and a vote in who is going to represent them. Well, there is another theory of representation. You might call it a virtual representation mm -hmm. in which – the patriarch of the family, the householder, is representing everybody in his family. So women are represented, Brian. That is, they have the status of citizens, and even though they can't vote and have very little uh, civil competence, they can't do very much, but nonetheless they are represented. So, but Peter, why do we care how many of them there are? Well, the real reason for this, Brian, is to achieve an enduring balance in the ah, Federal Union. So it's competition states. between the elites. Well, uh, yeah. Well, there's no question about it. And it's the tension between this elite concern, 
with having an effective voice in the councils of the national government, the new right. federal government, combined with this new revolutionary theory that the people are represented. That's the master fiction of the age. So these elites, to justify themselves, have to claim that they're not representing themselves. They're representing right. larger populations. And, and meanwhile, you can't assess the relative voting strength of a state according to wealth or property because there are so many different kinds of property. And, of course, there's a weird wrinkle in all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, the category that is both human and property, and, of course, we're talking yeah, about enslaved yeah, people. No, absolutely. They have, you know, you're talking about fictions, Peter. Now, one fiction is that an enslaved person, male or female, young or old, counts as three-fifths mm-hmm. of a free person, right? Yeah. So you have this kind of thing that it, it has the census, and it's adding it up and counting it, and it's based on human population. Yeah. But by the very nature of doing that, it's converting it into a political fiction, which is also an economic fiction. Yeah, and, no, you're, you're, you know, you're right on. So Michael Quinn was talking about how the founders were visionary and mm-hmm. you know, building in the population is the real basis of representation so that they knew that the states of the West are going to come into being yeah, and the states yeah. of the East. Are, but, you know, what were they thinking about the Three-Fifths Clause? Did they see this as an enduring foundation for the Constitution, or did they expect this to kind of fade away with time? No, no I mean, they, they certainly thought that everybody went into this thing with their eyes open and understood what they were compromising. But we can see the three-fifths clause as a a time bomb that was going to go off because once you've recognized the idea that slaves are humans and then you compromise that idea and say, well, they're somewhat less than human, then that powerful idea of equality, which is all over the place in the Revolution, the Declaration, but also in the Constitution, in the census is predicated on the idea of equality. That is, equal numbers of voters in different states are, are going to be represented equally in the House of Representatives. I mean, that's that's very important. So, Peter, that's, that's very interesting that we have this sort of language of equality all over the place. Mm-hmm. And yet, ironically, there's been one continuity in the census. Across all three of our centuries, they focused on racial distinction, and not just any racial distinction, but that between white and black, or what they called in the early 19th century, white and colored. And as the census becomes more sophisticated, more granular, they devise more granular language for race as well. So in 1850, they come up with a new category, a third category, mulatto, to describe someone of indeterminate proportion of black and white. Now, we're going to hear about this from Melissa Nobles, who's a political scientist at MIT, who's written about this shift in terminology. She says the new category was mostly the doing of an Alabama doctor named Josiah Knott, who believed that racial mixing was unhealthy. So for years, he'd been publishing articles and lobbying senators to start keeping track of this dangerous mulatto population. I hope I have said enough to make apparent the paramount importance of Negro statistics. If the blacks are intellectually inferior to the whites, if the whites are deteriorated by amalgamation with the blacks, if the longevity and physical perfection of the mixed race is below that of either of the pure races, and if the Negro is by nature unfit for self-government, these are grave matters for consideration. Josiah Knott DeBose Review, 1847. He had a long-standing interest in, not in slavery, because he believed that slavery 
required no defense, and, and he also believed blacks inferior, and that required no defense. But what he was interested in is the idea of polygenesis, uh, meaning that blacks and whites were different species. And so he thought that the mulatto was really the key to understanding the nature of human differences and human variation. His theory was that mulattoes would be an example of the deleterious effects of racial intermixture, and he wanted more statistical data to prove that. And so, and so the, the, the crucial question there was, were mulattoes doomed to have a shorter life? Exactly. Right. So that, you would want that was what you that's could exactly measure, right. right. And so you would want the mulatto category on censuses over time, right? Because you would want to have a longitudinal study, right? You want to see over the mm-hmm. time were these people in fact dying off. And that is why he lobbies a senator from Kentucky, Joseph Underwood, to get mulatto category on the 1850 census and he succeeds. That's Melissa Nobles, author of Shades of Citizenship: Race and the Census in Modern Politics. It's time for a short break. When we get back, we'll look at what race meant to the census takers of the 20th century, and we'll take a few of your calls. This is Backstory. We'll be back in a minute. 